lot of money and the vaccines, but it's so far and we don't even know if we're going to get anything. I actually feel like we should be for on testing and the social distancing and the PPE. Welcome back to the live drop. I'm your host, Mark Valley. Uh, if you're like me, you've kind of been thinking to yourself, how are we going to get a vaccine to everyone if, if and when we come up with one? And how are we testing millions of people and where do all these tests come from and how are we going to be continually supplied with them and ppe do we have enough are we are we still going to have enough anyway a lot of these covid19 pandemic questions have been floating around so i decided to uh ask my friend Maeve magner an industry renowned global health supply chain and market access advisor whose clients include foundation for new diagnostics bill and melinda gates foundation the global fund gavi vaccine alliance multinational pharmaceutical companies. Maeve and I have a little chat about the manufacture distribution of all these different elements, testing kit, elements of medical, I suppose, testing kits, vaccines, PPE across the globe. As an experienced global health supply chain specialist, Maeve gives her prognosis how the pandemic could likely play out. Begin transmission now. So my ground is in supply chain. And so basically what that means is getting products from A to B. So for instance, if you have an Apple iPhone, it's the whole process of the components being manufactured into a phone in China and then being delivered various Apple stores around the world. And then you are, if you're ordering it online, that whole product flow from when it's manufactured to when you order it online and, it, and it's a delivery all includes forecasting. So you have to do planning to understand what parts you need to think about disorders that you put in transported. Uh, so for a high risk, and so then they would have to have a lot of security, whereas you would have transportation for food, which would be perishable and would require cold chain temperature monitoring. And then once the products get to the customers, ensuring that they got what they want, when they want it and how they want it. So that's basic uh, supply chain management. I've been doing that in the high-tech industry with Dell Computers and other start other um, high-tech companies for about 20 years. But the last 15 years, I've been working in global development that is very much focused on getting healthcare commodities, uh, especially medicines and tests to different governments around the world, low- and middle-income countries. So that's basically getting HIV medicines, malaria tests, essential pain medicines to some of the more remote and rural areas in uh, low and middle income countries. So across Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, Latin America, and so on and so forth. And today I do advisory work with a lot of the big donor agencies. So that would be with the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for the Global Fund, um, who focuses on HIV, TB, malaria, Gavi, who focuses on vaccines. So you also played a integral part in getting antiretrovirals into Africa to kind of stop a rapid spread of HIV, I think, in the 90s. And I mean, now we have this focus right now on, on COVID, obviously, and there seems to be a big focus, like you mentioned, toward vaccines. But is there, I mean, from your perspective as someone who's actually, you know, seen the practical delivery and application of, of medicines and treatments, is there like a natural cycle of everyone wants a vaccine first, and then we can worry about other, other ways of management as opposed, like kind of vaccine versus, versus treatment? I mean, how would you compare it to, you know, other diseases, malaria, tuberculosis, any of those other ones where um, 
you had these two competing forces. Do we treat it or do we do we look for a cure? Yeah, look, I think there's uh, one of the biggest differences that we're seeing with COVID is that it is a pandemic. And in a way, it's where like an emergency situation or we're partially between emergency and development. So development is really about going in and helping low and middle income countries to strengthen their own health systems. And to do that takes a long while. It's not like you go in overnight, donate um, HIV medicines and then everything, you know, works fine. You have to build out their systems, both in terms of treatment diagnostics, but then also to ensure that they can do that for themselves on an ongoing basis. With emergencies, so we see a lot of the emergencies, humanitarian emergencies. Um, we also see a lot happening with, you know, when you get the hurricanes come true, when you get um, earthquakes, um, when you get severe flooding and all of that. And they're emergencies. So they're really time bound. And this is like you're doing everything that you can to address the immediate situation. So this pandemic kind of falls in between both because it's actually uh, it requires a long term commitment within the uh, systems that are already there. But there's an emergency response that's required to actually stop the spread of the pandemic. And we also saw that with Ebola as well. So I think the thing, the difference for me is that for COVID, we knew very little about it. And so everybody is trying to, we're getting lots of knowledge, new knowledge on a day by day basis, but we don't really have a collective knowledge yet about it. I think the other thing is that because it was a global pandemic, unlike Ebola, which really was, you know, confined to certain uh, countries in Africa, in West Africa, because it's a global pandemic, everybody's talking about it and everybody's trying to address it. But at the same time, we have countries like the US and like the UK and others that are going in and working directly with manufacturers and trying to take all of the medicines first or take all of the tests first and now trying to get all of the vaccines first. So you you see this kind of global fight, uh, you know, for all and even for the PPE and all of that. So I think that um, there's definitely different characteristics around how we support it. But the original response was around testing and treating. But because the pandemic's been getting out of control and because people need to, it's got such an economic uh, impact and people need to get back to work and there isn't a cure, then everybody's looking to the vaccine to say that, okay, well, once we get the vaccine, then it's great. We can all get back to work. We can all do what we want to do. And so there's a lot of money. There's billions of dollars being pumped into the vaccines. And I think that's fine. But I actually think that really we should be putting more money into the testing because we're closer to having antibody tests that can be used. And I think, quite frankly, as a citizen, if I was to look at my options of therapeutic that we're not sure, medicines that we're not sure whether they will or won't work, a test that's even if it isn't 100% accurate, but that can kind of give me some indication of whether I had it or whether I do have it, or a vaccine that may come out in 18 months time. And, and even then, we don't even know like how long it will be effective for, then my first choice would be testing because I feel for myself as well, that would be, I'd be more in control. So if I want to travel, I can take the test and understand if I have it. 
if I go to another country, I can take the test uh, if I'm coming back in. So I think that there's a lot more utility around the testing, but I'm not sure the global community has necessarily galvanized around that the same way as they have around the vaccines. It's really quite frankly like the vaccine is the nirvana. And I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't know whether that's being pushed by the global health community more or by the manufacturers more, but the manufacturers are definitely doing well out of this because a lot of the research and development and the fast tracking of the vaccine is being funded by the EU and by foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others. I remember working for you at the Clinton Foundation. You always really stress processes. What's the response been in terms of building up uh, processes as opposed to you know developing tests that work? I volunteered to be a contract tracer in California. So I took a quick little certification course at Johns Hopkins and signed up in Los Angeles. And they said, well, okay, great. Now you have to have two weeks every day for training and you have to have a non-Apple computer <laughs> and be able to work five days a week from from eight o'clock to 5 p.m. And I thought, I thought this was like a volunteer thing. You know, I, I like being a volunteer. I want to choose my own hours. So I'm just wondering, what are the, what's the kind of the re- response been in terms of contact tracing? It's it's sort of this un- these unseen workers. You know, these people are on the phone and calling. But I think that's, I mean, from what I'm getting is that's that's kind of an important thing to focus on right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, no, you, you're you're 100% correct. Because we do tend to think about it, like we think about the frontline workers as the nurses and the healthcare workers and all of that. But in actual fact, for all of it to, for us to come out of this uh, sooner rather than later, it does require all these different parts of the system to work together and does require a, a, a process. So for instance, on the testing, it really is about as soon as there are symptoms. And, and even if there isn't symptoms, so if I'm going to go travel, if I'm going to start traveling again, for me to take a test before I leave, just to know whether or not, you know, I have anything. I mean, when the antibody tests come out, knowing, well, they are out, but like when, you know, when we have the rapid diagnostics that we can do ourselves, just knowing whether or not I had the antibodies would be really helpful. But in light of that, before I travel, if I can do the test and I know that I do or don't have it is very important information. So if I do have a positive, then it's very important that as quickly as possible that that gets reported and then the contact tracing starts. And one of the challenges we've had here in Ireland is that it was taking days to get the tests and then it was taking days and weeks to actually do the contact tracing. And you're missing people that don't have symptoms or have very mild symptoms. And so therefore the spread is happening. So we put in Ireland, we put a huge focus on reducing the times for the testing and for getting the results and then for doing the contact tracing. And we've now actually introduced contact tracing app that seems to be working and has a very high uptake. So you're, you're correct. None of these in isolation are actually as useful as we think they are, but they all need to kind of work together. And I think the benefit of all of that is that the sooner that we can go from the testing to the contact tracing, and the higher likelihood we have of people ending up in hospital or on ventilators, which is uh, one of the challenges that we've had here as well. And so therefore, what you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce the impact as much as possible. So yeah, so I agree with you. There is there is a need to kind of tie it all together. So how is the contact tracing going for you? Oh, I haven't started it yet. Oh, come on, Mark. <laughs> I, I, I'm too busy podcasting. I'm going to. I just have to get like a Chromebook or something or another another 
computer. I, I did the training for it, and it's it's it just seems they're having a problem with it in LA, at least in LA County, where people don't want to give out information. I mean, yeah. right now, most of the infect, I mean, like forty eight percent of the infections are um, are like are Latinos, and um, right now in our current, you know you know, our current uh, immigration climate, you know, there's not a lot of test for government, not a lot of trust in government right now. So you have people that are like, I'm not going to tell you who was in my choir practice <laughs> or, or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit of a problem, but I definitely want to start. Are they pay, are they paying people in Europe or in Ireland to do contract tracing? Is it like a, like a national health job? You know, what they ended up doing actually is that um, at the very beginning, they just re reassigned people within the civil service and then people volunteered as well too. People wanted to help. And when people were unable to work or were not allowed to work because the businesses shut down, they were receiving what we call a weekly COVID payment. Mm-hmm. And so even some of those volunteered to do it. So it's like the army came in and they helped to do it. There were some of the school teachers that helped to do it, even even though they were still doing online classes and that. So, yeah. So in general, people don't get paid to do it. But the, what's interesting about the app is that app that we have here, it's all anonymous and it is the Bluetooth one. It, there's been a couple of different versions, but apparently it's working quite well. Um, I'm kind of one of those because uh, I have this issue about data, but I'm one of those that I'm not keen on giving up my information. But I do think there is a balance as well. I mean, if you know that that information is is being kept secure and not being shared with other government agencies and all of that, then, I, you know, I can get how it can impact, impact it. But it's important. It's important to know it. If we don't do the contact tracing, then we are going to have uh, big issues, quite frankly. Yeah, it would be hard to trust somebody just calling to some random person out of nowhere saying that they work for. It just sounds like a scam phone call. It does. Hello, my name is so-and-so. Click. <laughs> I'm surprised what? anybody actually really talks on the phone to, to anyone. I like what? this I like this anonymous app, though. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, there's probably people scamming off of that oh, anywhere, right? I mean, so. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I have a I have a friend who's a lawyer who works for the works for the feds. He said I'm I could be working the rest of my career on scams that are coming out of this. You mentioned before something about like, are we overlooking something? Like suddenly there's this rush to. I mean, there's testing. There's there's all this other stuff. But originally there was this big uproar about oh, we're shortage the shortage of masks and at least in the United States we didn't have enough masks and are we going to be able to supply masks? But how does the overall PPE supply look? I don't know that I have the answer, but I will say that, um, I mean, some of the things that, and again, talking from a supply chain standpoint, right? So some of the, th- some of the things that created this shortage is one, obviously the increased demand. I mean, just an insane amount of demand. Um, but the second thing that happened as well is that a lot of the logistic systems just basically shut down or were reduced uh, significantly at the very beginning because a lot of stuff was coming out of China, because a lot of transport um, lanes, when all of the travel um, stopped, a lot of the transport lanes, passing into transport lanes reduced. So for instance, if you had a flight that was coming from Shanghai to the U- to San Francisco on a daily basis and it was a passenger flight, there would be some cargo in that. But then once you shut down all the traffic between China and the US, then you don't have any of those planes coming. So immediately your supply chain is disrupted. But in addition to that, we also had challenges around where this PPE was being manufactured. And what we have seen in the last few months is that one, the 
transport lanes have opened again. Two, because the demand is an ongoing demand. What we are seeing is a lot of factories are actually ramping up. We've seen new players come into the market, but we've also started to see a lot more local manufacturing um, around it. And one small example, even though it's not the clinical PPE, is that with the face mask, I mean, everybody I see here in Kinsale where I'm living, like, I mean, every second house is like sewing up these these masks and they're all like really colorful and fashionable and everything like that. And so it's become the, the fashion accessory of the year, you know. But for the medical equipment, for the medical grade, they have opened up new facilities in, in different regions and all of that. So from a supply chain standpoint, it's interesting because a lot of companies um, would have been buying just in time so they wouldn't want to kind of hold inventory for a long time they'd want it as cheap as possible so they would get it from china so now there's a lot of rethinking going on around that and it's like okay well maybe it's better for me to pay a little bit more and have it locally manufactured and maybe i should think about buying you know four or five months instead of just buying two or three weeks so there's a lot of rethinking around the supply chains and where products would be manufactured and and how you're going to actually get them to where they need to get to, uh, etc. I don't know how long that'll last. I think, you know, we'll see it for a while because we've obviously got all these trade um, agreements that, you know, are causing lots of problems as well, too. We have China and the US. We have the US and Europe. We have the UK and Brexit. We have the UK and US. We have, you know, all of these are going on at the moment. And so, you know, there's, it's a bit unclear how it's all going to come. But my guess is that there will be some more uh, local manufacturing and we'll see that for a while. But that we We'll go back to at some point in time to where we can get the cheapest products and that will end up being in low middle income countries for the most part. Yeah, it's interesting, like what goes into the decision to produce something at home, right? Like it ha- if it has a like a critical value, you don't want to be depending on some ship, you know, in the South Pacific or something to deliver it to you. I mean, it's like we don't, you know, outsource making nuclear missiles. We make them, we make them, you know, in our home countries for the most part. I guess another question I had was what are potential choke points or what are any potential problems that you see happening with, with movement of, of PPE and of, of testing and of, of vaccines? I mean, when I think of supply chain. I think of, yeah, you think of everything. You think of, you know, trucking, shipping, cargo, you know, ocean liners, airplanes. How has that been affected by the virus, by the pandemic? These connecting processes? I mean, the connecting process is not so much, but what has happened, um, again, initially, the transport capacity just uh, tanked. And part of that was that the restrictions from countries. So I think the US at one point said that they weren't accepting any flights at all in from the US. But also as well, we saw where in China and other countries, there was a limited amount of PPE and they didn't want that to go to other countries because they wanted to fill their own demand first. And also then they had countries that they wouldn't send stuff to because of the risk of COVID. So as China came out of it and other countries like Italy and then Europe 
uh, went through it pretty badly and in the US. So you've had this ongoing travel restrictions that have actually created a massive impact around the uh, transportation. But then you would have seen some of the smaller companies that would have done some of the transportation. But when all of these orders for PPE and for tests and all of that were coming in, it was the bigger carriers that were taking up all the volume. So what happens is that you'll have, like on a ship, you'll have something like Maersk will have the ship, but then you'll have the DHLs and the FedExes and others that will go to them with big contracts and say that, okay, we want this percentage of the cargo space and and so on and so forth. So the smaller ones suffered and weren't able to actually bring product out. So you could maybe place orders for smaller volumes of product, but then you just had to, you were literally going to the back of the line in terms of getting those products shipped out either by boat or, or by plane. And then if they were going through different countries, again, because of the travel restrictions, they may have to go different routes. I know for Ireland, actually, again, as an example, when we were trying to secure PPE at the very beginning, we actually ended up using our national airline to do a direct flight between Ireland and Shanghai or Beijing, I can't remember. And we we were getting a plane load, full plane load of cargo of uh, PPE every single day for, I think, about a month and a half, two months. And so they had to open up those routes because we wouldn't normally have flown directly there. So there was a lot of operational stuff that had to go on to make that happen, regulatory stuff, immigration, all of that. Then taking into account whether the flight staff would have to quarantine. So there was a, there was a huge, a huge level of effort, but it actually got done very quickly. But the other one that's really, really interesting, and I heard about it this week, is that on the boats, there's been a lot of issues on boats around the staff because the boats stop off at the different ports and they're offloading cargo, but the crew weren't able to go off. And then they also weren't able to bring new crew on because they would have to send the crew from the UK to... I don't know, wherever in, you know, Southeast Asia or in Africa. And because of the restrictions, they weren't able to offload old and to unload new. So they've ended up with crew that are on these ships for like three, four months with no break at all, like working seven days a week. There's potential health issues and all of that. So there's a lot of unknowns that the, especially when they cross borders, that they don't actually have regulatory policy in place to try and address it. And then they don't really know who needs to address it. So there's a lot of new stuff for them. Um, But the good thing is because it is a pandemic, it can get discussed and it can get solutions can get put in place pretty quickly. But we, um, we're not seeing the capacity is back to where it needs to be. And I don't think that we will for a while. There's still too many restrictions on that. Yeah, I was reading that cruise ship, they have an infection. There's a recent cruise ship. I didn't know cruise ships started up again, apparently. I was thinking about that. Like, yeah, some of these transport ships, they must just just keep the same guys for, for, for six months or the same crew. Yeah, which is pretty tough on them because, I mean, it's pretty hard going. They work seven days a week. They work long hours. And really, you know, I mean, from a safety standpoint, it's probably really not good. But they have been... It's, it's, it was interesting. Yeah. But I can't, I can't, I didn't realize that the cruise ships were opening up. I mean, I have to say, that's the last thing I would be doing. <laughs> God, I can't wait to go for a cruise. Yeah, <laughs> Some people are doing it, though. Yeah. Currently, we headed toward a period of competition between 
most powerful countries as they retreat into their spheres of influence? Do you see any shift moving away from global interaction or cooperation in trade development and manufacturing towards these kind of isolated isolated spheres? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, so from a trade and from a supply chain standpoint, the things that are important is overall price, overall cost at the end of the day, and especially for low margin businesses. And when you look at cost, you have to look at your operations and your labor. And labor is cheaper in lower middle incomes, no matter what way we look at it. You do have to take into account transportation, but uh, for the most part, that has been offset. We've seen over the last, I don't know, I mean, for as long as I've been in supply chain, I mean, the trade, there's always trade agreements, there's always trade disagreements. And there's always offshoring, which basically means that you're sending it to India if it's customer service, you're sending it to China if you want it manufactured, you go to Cambodia or Pakistan if it's textiles. And as the prices there get a little bit higher, then you find the next tier of low middle income countries. So, I mean, I don't, you know, and then every now and then you'll have this push to bring stuff back on back to the US again or back into Europe again. So whether it's strategic, like you say, your nuclear missiles or key parts of that, or from a design standpoint for some of the high-tech companies, it may make more sense for them to do the manufacturing themselves. Or if it's very high cost and there isn't really any benefit to having it in China or elsewhere, then you will do it locally as well. So there's always discussions within manufact or within companies to understand the, the cost, the cost drivers, but also to understand the overall value of the product and whether there is a strategic value to it. But when it comes to the supply chain as well, there's also tax implications, right? So, I mean, you know, in Ireland, there's an awful lot of products that are made in Ireland. We're not a tax haven, but we do have a very attractive corporate tax. So the majority of pharmaceuticals are actually manufactured in Ireland. And a lot of the tech companies and high tech, uh, you know, the Googles, Amazons, Facebook, they all have Microsoft, they all have uh, headquarters in Ireland. So there's also uh, very much a tax driver around where operations are done. And so uh, apart from all the trade agreements, I think the other thing that's going to be really interesting to look at is the digital tax. And the OECD were supposed to bring out a ruling around that or a recommendation around that. And I don't believe that they've gotten that. Yet. So that to me is the other thing that will drive some change. But quite frankly, I think, you know, we'll make changes, but it'll evolve. It'll constantly flex in terms of, you know, all of those factors that I just talked about. I was reading that in the Bahamas, they've offered, um, you can stay there for six months without like a free visa to be able to stay there, to be able to stay anywhere. Have you seen innovations with um, people working remotely as a result of uh as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic that when push comes to shove, we actually have been able to become Zoom warriors or team warriors. You know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. if six or 12 months ago, I had suggested that do a workshop virtually, people would be horrified. It's like, okay. And, and myself, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that it would have been achievable, but the technology has been there. And I think it's really just a people piece of it that has held it back. And I think we've always believed that the networking element of it is important. But I think through COVID, we've been able to show that in actual fact, you can network quite well online. You can function 
quite well online. In fact, I would actually suggest that the productivity went up at least initially for the first, you know, month and a half, two months, because I think everybody was really conscious of making it work. I think we also see with schools as well, too, where there's an awful lot more online education uh, engagement than that. So I think from the adoption of innovation that's already been there, I think it's been quite high. I think people have been very innovative around trying to address COVID, COVID situations. And we've seen lots of apps and we've seen lots of technologies that are out there to address the problem that we have. There's a company here in Ireland that um, actually have sensors and they usually, it's a internet of things is called WIA and they would normally put sensors in a in an office and they would help you to optimize the space for the amount of people that you have coming in and out you know the traffic patterns and that and so they've been able to adopt that to use it to help in terms of social distancing but what's also been really interesting for me as well is that a lot of these startup companies have also jumped on the bandwagon to help out in terms of building out some of these ventilators the open source ventilators and using their expertise to to work with, you know, like-minded people to kind of get these to market quicker and doing a lot of that, you know, not-for-profit volunteer. And that's been really fantastic as well, too. We also saw a couple of apps here as well in Ireland where uh, based on Feed the Heroes, so, you know, doing uh, a GoFundMe campaign for feeding the health workers, but linking a lot of the food businesses that had closed down, uh, linking them to these this demand from the health workers and being funded by individuals. So stuff like that, which I think has been fantastic. And then, of course, the bigger innovation around the vaccines and around the tests and all of that, that's been, you know, pretty phenomenal as well. And around the ventilators, too. Is there any is there any place where people can find out more about some of these these new applications that are filling these demands? I mean, is there a is there an organization or a site that's kind of sponsoring them or organizing them? Or um, there isn't really, but what I can do is I can send you some links. I don't know if you have somewhere you can post them, but um, I oh, can cool. send yeah. links. Show notes, links in the yeah. show notes. Yeah, there you go. That'll work. I guess unless there's anything else you really want, this has been this has been wonderful, Maeve. Thanks for your time and uh, your expertise. And um, yeah, just the fact that you're not running around the house screaming like, oh my God, we're all going to die is, is hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean yeah, I don't worry. Don't worry. Maeve's got a handle on this. We're going to yeah. get everything to everybody. You know, it's no, I don't know about that, but, but actually, and it is interesting. I mean, that was one of the things we had talked about earlier, but it is interesting to see that because this is a global pandemic, you know, once the vaccines come out, once the tests come out, it's like how to ensure equitable distribution of them. And, right. and there has been very consorted and very deliberate efforts around that. And there is a, an initiative set up by WHO and uh, some of the big governments, uh, including the EU and some of the foundations like the Gates Foundation and others to make sure that when they do come out that low and middle income countries actually get access as well too and that it doesn't all go to the highest bidder and actually what they're doing also is quite innovative in a way they're doing advanced market commitments so basically what they're doing is providing a lot of the funding to get this manufacturing covered knowing that you know when these tests come out or when the vaccines come out, they may not work, right? So it's, but they're willing to take that risk so that the manufacturer doesn't have to take that risk. 
And as part of that, then the agreement is that, you know, the EU and LMICs, low middle income countries will actually get a fair share of the of the products that will come out. And there will be allocation processes that will be uh, put in place to do that. So it's good to see that um, there is that overall focus. But I mean, I think we're going to, quite honestly, I think it's going to be a bit like Ebola. You know, where Ebola for a long time was very, everybody was paranoid about it. But, you know, for the last year, DRC has had a lot of cases of Ebola. And it barely even made the news, quite frankly. And I think that it will become part of like our our day to day. I think when we do get to tests and we understand the immunity and we understand who's had it, who hasn't, I think it'll be it'll help in terms of better decision making, not just from a government standpoint or from a corporate standpoint, but even as individuals, we can decide, you know, we can take control and we can decide where we go and if we go and when we go. So yeah, so I think it's but I also see a lot of advantages to what's been happening as well, too. I just think that there's been a better sense of community, a better sense of contribution of skills and time and effort. And people have slowed down a little bit, you know, and they're making time for each other, making time for family. So my hope would be that we don't lose some of that as well and that we can actually capture that. So hopefully it won't be as as bad as as it could be. Any advice for someone uh, looking into a career in supply chain? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a, it's definitely, it's become very sexy. Uh, when I started in supply chain, it wasn't. And, you know, it was very difficult to get people to even have any bit of interest in it because their thought was, okay, it's like working in a warehouse or whatever. But what's been really interesting about supply chain in the last four or five years is that a lot of technology is driving the supply chain evolution. So it's very, it's actually quite sexy. It's actually a, a really good sector and discipline to be. It's actually now all about data as well, too. So if you're interested in data, data analytics are really, really important to the supply chain. So, I mean, I would say there's many, many courses in in colleges. I mean, most colleges in the U.S. are offering courses in supply chain and different disciplines in supply chain. But I think it's definitely a career worth following. And it gives you so many different options. You can go in so many different directions. Um, and it's very transferable, extremely transferable across industries. Um, and even you see that yourself, Mark. I mean, like, you know, you've done two tours of duty, um, you right, know, right. directly, and it's very transferable, right? Oh, I still want to go to Laos someday. Are they still over there, the Clinton yeah, Foundation? Yeah. Are they yeah. still over there? This initiative, yeah. Just let us know when we start to go. Maeve, thank you very much for being on the live drop. Thank you very much, Mark. Good to talk to you.